one day I was in Van Cortlandt Park in the Bronx and I was on the aqueduct trail and I was shuffling. It was a really hot day and a guy is coming from the opposite direction. He looks at me and says, hey, sis, you would lose weight faster if you walked. And I said, hey, bro, <laughs> I'm training for three marathons this season. Thanks. He's like, oh, my bad, my bad. And then he continues <laughs> running. And, you know, his immediate thought was, oh, I was, I must have been doing this to lose weight because here's this, here's this fat woman running. She must be trying to lose weight. So I'm just going to insert my little commentary, unsolicited advice <laughs> to her about walking so that she can lose weight faster. It makes me so angry that people think that they have the right to comment on whatever it is that I'm doing or that they think they know why I'm doing what I'm doing. You don't know. And you do not have the right to comment on me or my body because you feel like it. <laughs> huh, I didn't realize That's that. That's an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about that. I think that. you need to come over, stand in my shoes. Agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Myrna Valerio doesn't just do marathons. She does ultra marathons. We're talking 30, 40. 50 miles, often on trails. She's been featured in running magazines. She's sponsored by a bunch of athletic gear companies. She's also obese, based on the height and weight chart we're all familiar with. I'm a plus-size woman, and most people don't think when they see me, oh, there's an athlete. And when she tells them she's a runner. Oh, wow, so like, do you do 5Ks? <laughs> uh, no, I, I do ultra marathons. So like, do you walk the entire thing? <laughs> uh, is this your first one? Um, or, you know, why haven't you lost weight if you run so much? That is the real hang-up, isn't it? We are trained to believe body weight is the best indicator of a person's health and fitness, that thin bodies are healthier than heavy bodies, and that someone who exercises as much as Myrna Valerio should be lean. But Valerio is not some biological anomaly. She is just a clear example of the trouble with our assumptions about body weight and health. Today on the show, we are exploring that disconnect and how it's made us all less healthy. My legs are strong, my heart is strong, um, my hips are really strong. You know, I can do things that, you know, people who don't exercise can't do. Um, and I can do them for a long time. That is a marker of fitness for me, that endurance that I have, the ability to try different sports, the ability to uh, and the ability to do them for a long time. Valerio says her blood pressure, cholesterol, glucose levels, they are all great for a 46-year-old Black woman. I'm looking at my resting heart rate right now. It's 54, um, which is pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, 54 is really good. So it's just her weight that doesn't fit society's picture of fitness. Valerio has been plus-sized since she hit puberty at age nine, but she's always been physically active. A turning point came in middle school. The very first day, we were allowed to pick our after-school co-curriculars, and uh, I tried out for field hockey, and it was really, really hard. It was so tough. I had never run that much in my life on grass, number one. You know, I had the wrong shoes on, the wrong, I didn't have a sports bra on or anything, and so we had to run a mile to warm up, and then warm, and then we warmed up with stretches, and then we had to run a timed mile, and then we had to do what used to be called suicides, now they're called line drills. We had to do two sets of those up and down the field. And, and you know, the, the entire time, my body is not feeling great. I'm so tired. And I'm like, when is this going to end? I can't do this, but I'm doing it slowly. And then the, the, the coach comes up to me and says, hey, you know, I think she's going to say, you know, hey, no thanks. Go do community service or go try out for volleyball or something. Um, but she says, hey, you know, you're out here. This is hard. I know, but you're doing it. Clearly, you want to be here, right? Keep it up. And that is why, folks, I became a runner. <laughs> I became a runner because I was so enamored with that coach and the fact that she didn't yell at me and the fact that the entire team was so supportive of me and so wonderful and kind and friendly. And nobody said, 
you don't have the body for this, Myrna. Or you'd be better at this if you lost weight. Never, never, ever, ever did anyone ever say that to me. And, you know, I know that's not the experience of most people. Um, but yeah, and that's and I just kind of flourished. I really, really loved the camaraderie of the team and um, and how everyone's working individually to make themselves a better player for the team. So I started running in the mornings so that I could run up and down the field without getting tired. And then I started to love running. She kept at it all the way through college and into her life as a new professional and young mom. But then life got too hectic, and running fell off her schedule. At one point, she was commuting between Maryland and New Jersey for work, trying to get a graduate degree and dealing with a chronically ill child. And on one of these commutes back from Maryland to New Jersey on the weekend. I had my kid in the car, I'm driving on the highway, and I started having these chest pains where, you know, I was like, well, am I having a heart attack? Oh my goodness, these, these chest pains came out of nowhere. She made it home and went to the emergency room. Where after a couple of hours of tests and stuff, uh, they told me that I wasn't having a heart attack and that I had had a panic attack. And so that was that was really eye-opening for me after I denied it, of course. <laughs> it's like, there's no way I'm, I'm having a panic attack. I mean, like, I'm like calm, cool, and collected. I, mm. Why would I have a panic attack? Um, you know, in hindsight, you know, I, I look at all the things that I was doing, the fact that I wasn't sleeping, the fact that my kid was sick all the time, that my husband had a crazy schedule, that um, I was working all the time. I would get up, I would get up at four o'clock in the morning and work and then go to school, teach, do activities on the weekends, uh, run a dorm at night and then not get to bed until you know one o'clock and then wake up at 4.30 the next day and, and lesson plan. Um, and so I had to see a cardiologist after the... Uh, ER visit. He told me that I was going to die if I didn't change my lifestyle. And that was mostly related to the fact that I had such a high stress level in my life and that I didn't sleep. And he said, you know, you could, you could stand to lose a couple of pounds as well, but mostly you need to, you need to reorganize and reprioritize your life if you want to live to see your son grow up. And so that was, that was, that was it. <laughs> I knew that running was the thing that was missing from my life. Like, cause I had stopped doing it and I knew it made me feel so good. I got on my treadmill the day after that doctor appointment and said, well, here we go. <laughs> and I started with a mile again. And it was very painful. Um, what, what did you weigh at the time? You said you had to lose some weight. I, you know, I was over 300 pounds. When you started back into exercising then, was weight loss the primary goal for you? I wouldn't say it was a primary goal. I would say it was a goal. And also, like, and that had been corroborated by the cardiologist. He's like, well, you know, you could stand to lose a, a couple of pounds. And it wasn't like you need to lose 100 pounds or you need to lose 150 pounds. The main thing that he had said to me was that I had to reprioritize my life. And so that's what I was working on. I knew that running would be a part of it. I wasn't concerned about the way I looked. I was, that wasn't a thing for me. It wasn't, um, it was never an aesthetic um, ideal for me to, to, to be smaller, but if he thought that it would help me feel better, then then I was going to do it. And so I did. I, and I ended up like over the, the, the next two years or so, you know, I lost just under 70 pounds. Mostly it was exercise. <laughs> um, and then I plateaued. And But I just kept exercising and I just kept moving because it's good for me. Does your weight affect your running ability? Does it? No, it... it physics. <laughs> mm. I'd probably be faster. <laughs> mm. um, if if I weighed less. Are you more prone to injury? Do you have to worry more about your ankles, your knees, or your hips? Uh, good questions. I am going to say no, that I'm not more prone to injury because I'm bigger. My body is acclimated to running. And I, mean, I look at my thinner friends who have the same exact injuries, a torn meniscus or uh, a little bit of arthritis in their knee or, or whatever. Also from comments from my orthopedic surgeon who repaired my meniscus, my torn meniscus, uh, I said, hey, you know, like, do you think it would make any difference if I, you know, say I lost 100 pounds or whatever? He's like, no, he says, well, you know, the, he says, you have a little arthritis in your knee. That's typically genetic. 
Um, and but also you've been running for a long time. So you're it's it's bound to happen. Uh, some sort of injury is bound to happen. So going off what my orthopedic doctor says, my orthopedic surgeon, and and all my own anecdotal experience, I would say no. In fact, I think it probably has made running has made my joints stronger. Why did you start blogging about this and why specifically blog as fat girl running? So I started my blog uh, in 2011 when I was training for my very first road marathon, the Marine Corps marathon. And I, and I wanted to kind of tell stories about what it was like to be uh, an endurance athlete as a black plus size endurance athlete (laughs) in a field uh, of much thinner, um, mostly white athletes. It got some attention, (laughs) Uh, a blog post that I wrote about uh, that was tired of people doubting me and, and, you know, trying to get into my head. And I was tired of going to doctors and having them immediately say, oh, well, you need to exercise and lose weight. And I wrote about that. It, you know, just kind of very candidly, very honestly. And that got the attention of, you know, a multinational media outlet. It was crazy. It started out with Wall Street Journal. Um, and out of that came Runner's World magazine. And it was, it was 12 pages because my mom counted. Hmm. And... <laughs> But it was it was really sort of a, a very disruptive article because here was this woman, this plus size woman who did long distance and wasn't focused on losing weight or participating in diet culture. So it, it sparked a, a huge conversation about fitness and what does it mean to be fit? Can you be fit and fat? That sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, that turned into uh, another feature on you know on TV show and and so uh, the attention hasn't stopped. Myrna Valerio is an ultra athlete who wants the world to see that athletes come in all shapes and sizes. She defies some widely held stereotypes and becomes a role model in the process. Ultra marathoner Myrna Valerio is on a mission not only to conquer daunting long distance races but to prove I think that what I represent is a lot of people who just who love to move, who love to run, who love to to ski and explore and, and do things no matter what their body looks like, even while they're, you know, constantly being hounded with commercials on TV and, and diet things and, and weight watchers. And they still do it anyway because it gives them joy and it and it, it helps them achieve a profound sense of self, which is exactly why I continue doing what I'm doing. Myrna Valerio is the Myrnavator on Instagram, and her memoir is called A Beautiful Work in Progress. It ends with this poem. Fat girl running, swimming, moving, learning, pausing, progressing, jiggling, rubbing, chafing, shaking, sinking, rising, living, being. Now, why is it so hard for people to believe that ultra runner Myrna Valerio is an athlete because of her body size, when football fans are happy to praise the bigness of their favorite linemen? The big fella, Daniel Falele, at all 400 pounds of him. Nobody wants to tackle the big fella. Let's take a look at it. These huge players in college and the NFL are hired and admired for their size. Even though it's well-known, some of them have to eat huge amounts of food to stay so large. And they may be at higher risk for high blood pressure and diabetes because of that. On the street, out of uniform, they're likely to be dismissed as just another obese couch potato. But on the field... What do you think about that? This guy is unbelievable. I mean, Sean Rogers, what is he, 360? And go like 70 yards for a score. Trail 13, nothing. The screen is intercepted. Big Keith Trailer. Look at him rumble. 40, 50. <laughs> Watch out. The earth is shaking. Our He's assumptions about weight, fitness, and health start to fall apart pretty quickly under scrutiny, don't they? Now meet Catherine Hively. A few years ago, she had a really bad flare-up of her IBS. Which is irritable bowel syndrome. My body doesn't always work well with food. (laughs) Um, So I was just really sick for a very long time. You know, I kept having people come up to me that didn't know that I was having this health struggle, you know, say things like, 
oh my gosh, you look great. Like, how did you lose the weight? What did you do? What diet are you on? I'm like illness. Like (laughs) that's the diet I'm on right now. Um, most people would be like, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. But on occasion, um, you would get people that would say things like, wow, I wish I had something like that so that I could keep my weight under control. It's very painful. Um, you can have a lot of really, really strong abdominal cramps. I had both of my children naturally and it did not hurt as much as IBS. <laughs> so uh, if that puts it in perspective, um, it can be very crippling um, abdominal uh, pain. So your stomach can go all the way from your stomach to your intestines, um, almost make it impossible to sit up straight. Like you almost have to lay down flat sometimes if you're really in a bad way. In the middle of that flare, I was, I would say I lost about 15 or 20 pounds in one month. I'm a small woman. <laughs> I'll, I'll put that out there. I'm, I'm five, six, and I've always been kind of on the thinner side, just naturally. That's just my natural body type. Um, but when I'm in a flare, then I can drop down to, to like size two, you know, really tiny, um, and almost become kind of emaciated looking. So to think that someone would want to take that kind of health burden onto themselves strictly for the privilege of being thin, it was, it was a little bit, um, it was a little, it was sad, but it was also, I have to say irritating because, you know, at the time, like you're, you're you feel like you're suffering and somebody's kind of taking that suffering and thinking that it's a positive thing. And then even people that recognized that it was clearly a not intentional or a positive would try to spin it and say, well, at least you look great. It's like, well, okay, so I can either be healthy or be thin. I'd rather be healthy because when you're sick like that, you don't have as much energy. Um, you know, you can't do the things that you want to do. You can't travel the way you want to travel or go to parties or um, take your kids to the park because you're symptomatic and and it it, it really impacts your day-to-day life and the, the types of activities that you, you can do. Once I was getting out of the flare, I started doing more weights and um, putting on putting on weight, but also lifting weight. I only gained it back during the pandemic. Um, so for me, it was a really healthy experience to be completely shut down in my own kitchen because I was able to to kind of figure out what worked for me. But I definitely put on weight and um, I'm, I'm not unhappy about that. You know, I'm, I'm at 140 now, so um, that's still small, <laughs> you know, in the grand scheme of things. But for me, that's that's probably on a bigger size than I've been. I feel healthier now for sure. And I am healthier. You know, I'm, I'm still active. I'm walking, I'm doing my Pilates and all that kind of fun stuff. And, um, so I feel like I'm actually the strongest I've ever been, but I'm also the heaviest I've ever been. And, um, I don't mind that it's been from actually eating, you know, and enjoying, um, meals with my family. And yeah, so it's a shame that there's a certain sort of stereotype of what is a healthy body and what isn't because I know for a fact that some that especially at my sickest that I was not nearly as healthy as people that could have been much larger than me but were you know running half marathons or 5ks or you know out hiking and having a great time so I, I I think that it's more important how you feel than the number on the scale or the size of your dress. That's Catherine Hively. She's a freelance writer in New Jersey. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. So what can you tell about a person's health based on how much they weigh? Almost nothing. I would say it's, it's very useless. It's Top of Mind. Thanks for listening. America has an obesity epidemic, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The majority of adults in this country are overweight or obese, and that rate has tripled since the 1960s. In addition to being bigger, we're also less healthy. Rates of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and cancer have all gone up. And the message we have heard loud and clear is that obesity is driving our health problems. 
But 30 years ago, exercise physiologist Glenn Gazer says he started really doubting that claim. I uh, became aware of a lot of research that had been published that uh, seemed to suggest that conventional wisdom was uh, missing a big part of the puzzle, and that had to do with lifestyle, particularly exercise and diet. Gazer is a professor at Arizona State University, and he wrote a book about this back in the 90s called Big Fat Lies, The Truth About Your Weight and Your Health. And all the research that's been published since then pretty much confirms what I had you know, laid out in Big Fat Lies some 25 years ago. That body weight is not an accurate gauge of health. Let's take 100 people, um, 100 women, let's say, all of the same age. You line them up according to their body fat. So you have the leanest on one side and the heaviest on the other side. Then let's say you go down that line and you take each woman's blood pressure. You'll find that on average, you'll have a greater likelihood of having to finding high blood pressures in the heavier people than the thinner people. So then you have to ask the question, is this due to the weight or is it due to the lifestyle? To try and answer that, you'll have all the women fill out questionnaires about their lifestyle, like their eating habits and their exercise habits. And again, you find a correlation with body weight. The people who are on the heavier end of that you know, side of the room, they will have on average uh, lower diet quality than individuals on the leaner half. Same thing for fitness levels and physical activity. But you still don't know if the heavier people have poor health because of their weight or because of their poor diet and sedentary lives. One easy way to resolve this is to take the individuals on the heavy end of the room, make them start an exercise program, and give them a healthier diet to consume. And you find out in very short order, on a matter of days or weeks, their health improves, even though their weight may not change at all. So this tells us that it is primarily the behaviors, the diet and the exercise, that are far more important contributors to overall health. So do you disagree then with the CDC that obesity is a disease? Yes, it, it, it's not a disease. Uh, and let me tell you why. Uh, if, you def if you define disease in the way the CDC does, that means everyone with a body mass index above 30 has a disease. That is wrong. That is absolutely incorrect. If obesity is a disease, why is it that for people over the age of 65, it is better to be moderately obese than it is to be lean? Survival is greater for an individual who has a BMI of 30 than it is for an individual who has a BMI of 20. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's better to be overweight or even obese when you're over the age of 60, better in terms of like yeah. you're going to live longer if you're larger? Let me tell you, this is a fact. And it's not a fact coming from me. It's a fact coming from our government, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Surveys, which are run by the United States government. Their data shows that if you want to live a long life, the chances of living a long life are greatest if you are overweight. But how do you explain that phenomenon? Why would overweight people be more likely to live a longer life? Because overweight is a stupid concept. Over what weight? What does overweight mean? Overweight generally means a weight that is over something that is so-called ideal. Mm. The ideal weight concept is bogus. The desirable weight concept is bogus. It was invented by the life insurance industry. If you go back about a century to the early 1900s, uh, the life insurance industry needed to find ways in which they could um, accurately predict uh, mortality risk in individuals that they were about to insure. Height and weight measurements were easy to get, so that's what they used. And it turned out that height and weight can help you predict whether some people will live a shorter life. But that's only true on the very extreme ends of the weight chart. For a given height, people who are very, very thin are at high risk, and people who are very, very heavy are at high risk. But for the vast majority of people, and by vast majority, I mean probably 75 to 80 percent at least of the population, fall into, into this middle area that doesn't seem to be able to predict much uh, whether you're a good or bad mortality risk. But those height and weight charts caught on anyway. 
doctors and public health officials embraced the notion of ideal weight. That later morphed into the slightly more complicated body mass index calculation, or BMI, which was endorsed by the World Health Organization. When they issued these standards for body mass index uh, in terms of classifying weight as either a normal weight range uh, or a healthy weight range, uh, they just made arbitrary cut points at, at certain BMI levels and classified them as you know, either normal weight, overweight, or, or obese. But they weren't really closely tied to any real health metrics. So if you wanted to know how healthy someone is and how, how likely they are to live a long life, what are you going to look at besides weight, since you're setting weight aside? I would uh, uh, have a person do a fitness test. I would basically put them on a, a treadmill or a cyclergometer and uh, incrementally increase the workload until they reached a maximum. It turns out that that maximum work rate that they reach, that maximum level, is a very good predictor of their cardiorespiratory fitness level, which is a very, very strong predictor of overall health, uh, longevity prospects, and risk of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, you name it. I would also take a look at their diet. We know from research that uh, there are certain dietary variables that seem to predict better health outcomes. Generally, plant-based diets that are rich in fruits, vegetables, whole grain products, and that are low in uh, red meat and processed meat and, and so forth. These um, sorts of diets seem to predict health outcomes far better than just knowing what a person's weight is. How common is it, though, do you think, in the American population for someone who is overweight or obese to also actually be in good health? Let's fill a room with 100 American adults uh, who qualify as obese. I mean, how many of those people, if you, if you put them through the fitness test, are actually also going to show up as being healthy? Not very many. We do have a great many people, far too many people in our country just aren't physically active enough to achieve health benefits. And we have a lot of people in this country that just don't consume a very healthy diet. But even if the problem is the lifestyle and not the weight itself, is there really any harm in telling people to lose weight if that's what gets them eating better and moving more? Actually, yeah, says Gazer, because we're setting them up to fail. As I've said on many occasions, it's far easier to get a fat person fit than it is to get a fat person thin. E exercise is my specialty, and we've performed many studies and published them on individuals that um, fall into this category of overweight or obese by the body mass index criteria. And when we start them in an exercise program, we find that their fitness level improves almost across the board. Almost everyone will improve their fitness level. But they don't lose much weight because the human body compensates. It's a very, very uh, strong biological phenomenon here, this adaptive thermogenesis, as it's called, where we adapt to try to uh, thwart our efforts to lose weight. It happens on the exercise side as well as the diet side. So when individuals start exercise programs or diets, they may lose a little weight, but oftentimes it's way less than what would be expected on the basis of you know, how many calories you're expending during exercise or how many calories you're eliminating from your diet. And that's because of this adaptive thermogenesis that takes place. So even if you are burning more calories than you are consuming, an individual might still stop losing weight and remain, in fact, overweight or obese based on the BMI criteria. Yes. Yeah. And it's a really complex you know, issue. It's not as simple as you know, calories in, calories out. What determines a body's sort of like stable weight where you're going to kind of, the weight loss is going to stop and you'll just sort of like plateau at that spot? Oh, wow. That is just a monstrous question to, to respond to because you have all sorts of uh, factors that play a role in this. You have um, our hormones, you have you know, the, the nervous system, you've got uh, the biochemical uh, changes that take place, um, total numbers and sizes of our fat cells that store most of our energy, uh, th these things can change. So it, it, it's huge. So for example, you know, throughout my adult life, 
my weight fluctuates maybe over the last 40, 50 years since I left college. My weight has stayed fairly constant, maybe five to 10 pounds either way. And that depends a, a lot on uh, how uh, intense my exercise regimen is. I mean, I used to train for marathons, done a lot of long uh, distance uh, cycling. When I'm doing a lot of that exercise, my body weight tends to go down a few pounds. When I lay off and go to a lighter routines, I gain a little of the weight back. And so my set point range is plus or minus maybe about five or six pounds. But a lot of individuals may have set point ranges that are a little bit higher than that. And that might be due to the fact that they might uh, try more rigorously um, to lose weight at, at certain times. But everyone will fluctuate within that set point range. And that's pretty much determined largely by just genetics. And this is why the focus on body weight has backfired. Since we're told that success means weight loss, people quit the behaviors that improve their health when they don't see the right number on the scale. This is basically what we call in this latest article we published a futile cycle, a weight loss futile cycle. We get all excited about trying to lose weight. We get you know, started on a, a weight loss program. And typically the amount of weight that is lost is far less than what is desired. So uh, people tend to get frustrated, demoralized. They quit the program, they regain everything. And we go into this cycle over and over again. And there's evidence that that kind of weight cycling increases a person's risk of dying from cardiovascular disease. So the message that weight loss is the path to better health has made America less healthy physically and mentally, since exercise and good nutrition are important for emotional well-being, too. We've been framing exercise and diet merely in terms of calories. They're, they're a means to weight loss, and I want to see that changed. The exercise and diet should not be viewed as a means to an end, but as ends in their own right. Healthy eating and physical activity are important behaviors that produce good health, regardless of one's weight and whether or not one loses weight. Glenn Gazer is an exercise physiologist at Arizona State University, and he's author of Big Fat Lies, The Truth About Your Weight and Your Health. Today on Top of Mind, we've heard about the physical costs of believing that body weight is the best measure of a person's health. There are also significant psychological consequences. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Thanks for tuning in. On the most extreme end of the spectrum, society's obsession with body size can fuel eating disorders, which have become so common in America, nearly one in 10 people will have one during their lifetime. So that is where we need to start with Corrine Hannon. I am a clinical psychologist, and my specialty is working with eating disorders. It's kind of like you come on the scene with a certain amount of water in a glass, and that's your predisposition to developing any mental illness or any medical disorder. And then the stress of the environment is like pouring water into the glass. And when the glass overflows, you can be diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And with eating disorders specifically, I think our culture's obsession with thinness and weight and lifestyle as some sort of a badge of honor I think really contributes to that water overflowing in a lot of people. Can people have an eating disorder and also have a large body? Absolutely. I think what's so commonly misunderstood is that eating disorders have a look. And to look like you have an eating disorder, you just have to look like a human being with a human body. I have had clients uh, come into my office in what others would describe as a very large or fat body size, who are physiologically and metabolically starving and eating the amount of food that really would not sustain a toddler. And because of their body size, doctors and um, people in their community just assume that they're overeating or eating in kind of an out-of-control way. 
I had a client come in. She was really suicidal. Um, I had to hospitalize her actually for her suicidal ideation. She was in a large body size and she was desperate to shrink her body, desperate to lose weight. She came from an ethnicity that have larger bodies. And I feel like her body was perfectly normal for her or possibly like had she had gained some weight in the course of maturing over her life or possibly because of her poor relationship with food. And everyone that she encountered would tell her to lose weight. Her mom would, her dad would, her family members, her ecclesiastical and church leaders, and the medical professionals that she encountered would tell her to lose weight. And when she landed in my office, um, she had a severe eating disorder, very restrictive, intensely restrictive, eating calories that would it would make anyone um, lose their ability to concentrate, to learn, to think, to remember, to function. And um, most people don't, didn't believe her. They're like, well, you can't be this size and be eating that little. You must be lying. You must be hoarding. You must be, you know, secretly eating food. And in hospitalizing her for her suicidality, which is very, very common with people who are restricting, because your brain especially gets so compromised, it's very common to have high levels of suicidal ideation. In the hospital, she was fed regularly and became stable, right? But sometimes because of the history of dieting with her, um, she could gain weight very, very quickly and easily with normal food levels because her body was trained to feel safe. So this is an example of misunderstanding, misdiagnosis, miseducation, and it's very difficult for my clients to continue to eat normally, especially if normal eating leads to weight gain due to metabolic, um, genetic, and or other issues because it, they get such little reinforcement in their lives to stabilize their eating. What they get reinforcement about is getting smaller at all costs, even if it leads to you being suicidal. In fact, as soon as she got out of the hospital, one of the first things her mom said to her was, I have a new diet for you to try. <laughs> so it's like, a, it's like a sickness. That's the sickness I feel like in our community is the obsession over shrinking people's bodies. So if a doctor tells somebody with some health concerns to lose weight, I would with all humility and not so much humility, <laughs> suggests that we focus on behaviors. So weight is not a behavior. Weight, body shape, body size, they're not behaviors. We can focus on health behaviors, things that are really, really important like sleep, like social support, like mental health, like intuitive eating, and body movement. Those are the things I would focus on. You didn't say exercise. You said body movement. Is that intentional? Uh-huh. <laughs> Why? Um, because I think sometimes exercise comes with, it's loaded for some people. Like it needs to be brutal. Like it needs to be difficult. Like it needs to make you feel uncomfortable. It can if you would like it to, but you certainly don't need to engage in movement in a way that's uh, disruptive or painful for it to benefit you. You can do things that are enjoyable and lovely and expansive and interesting and still get all the movement you need. And when it comes to um, diet, you didn't use healthy diet no. or eat healthy. You said intuitive eating. I did. What's the distinction there? Intuitive eating is something that actually can last your whole life. It's something that you're born with. Um, it's your ability to monitor your internal world and cues and know exactly what you need and what's right for you. Is intuitive eating just eating what you want when you want? <laughs> no, it's not. Okay. Um, it's definitely getting in, in tune with your cues of hunger and fullness. Mm -hmm. It's rejecting diet mentality. It's noticing and dismissing the food police. It's incorporating intuitive movement. It's incorporating gentle nutrition. It's making sure that you have enough. I try to teach people that you can really get back into a neutral place with food, and food is food. It's not junk. It's not clean. It's food. What about the mother who knows that her, her daughter agonizes over her body size, has maybe been teased about it, is bigger than her friends, what can a parent do in that case that is 
not going to fuel shame and potentially an eating disorder? I love this question, Julie. And my answer makes a lot of parents uncomfortable. And it remains my answer, which is I have 100% compassion and empathy for how difficult it is to raise a child in a fat phobic society. But the problem is not your child. The problem is the fat phobia of our society. And while all of your intention to tell your child to change their body to fit in and have an easier time in society are born of love and connection and devotion to your child, they will ultimately continue to perpetuate internalized fat phobia and harm to your child. And becoming aware of and rooting out fat phobia in yourself and then teaching your child that society is fat phobic and that is what is harming you, you are not the problem, as difficult as that is. It is, to me, the only way to navigate living in a fat phobic society. The problem is the way people treat fat people. The problem is not people with various body sizes. And I use the word fat because the fat positive community and health at every size community has really tried to reclaim the word fat as a neutral descriptor, like an adjective, like blonde or blue-eyed. So what is that conversation with your child like then? The conversation is about the behaviors. I want my child to have a good relationship with food. I want my child to have a good relationship with movement. I want my child to have find really good people in their lives. And if the people in their lives are treating them differently based on their body size, they need different people in their lives. And that's going to start with the family or the support network being 100% supportive of you as an individual and that no matter what your body size, shape, and weight, we can love you, we can connect with you, and we can pursue health behaviors in a way that doesn't perpetuate shame, internalized. And if somebody in, if you rub up against someone in this society that shames you for your body, shame on them. I got your back. Um, families that... Uh, if the doctor has said, you know, your kid needs to stop gaining weight. So the family, you know, trying to be supportive maybe says, hey, we're all going to go on a diet together and we're all going to stop eating sugar and we're all going to do, make sure we have a big, you know, pile of vegetables at every meal and we're all going to go out and exercise together after, after dinner. What parts of that are problematic and, 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 and how do you retool that? Okay, so what I would say about that is that at the seed of this plan is a family who wants a healthy, well-adjusted child. And this current plan of dieting and restricting sweets and pumping up the exercise seems like a good plan, and it might even look like and behave like and show results of a good plan in the short term. In the long run, there is too much overwhelming evidence that you are putting your child at risk for a difficult, complicated, problematic, possibly disordered relationship with food and movement and and sugar, which you're never not going to have access to. And that if you really want health and wellness for your child, set really good habits now with normalizing that sugar is always going to be available, that you can have a good relationship with food by listening to your body, and that you can have a good relationship with movement that doesn't have to be all or nothing, and that this will ultimately pay off. In fact, I say to people, if you really are afraid of your child gaining weight, and I don't blame you because our society is brutal to fat people, especially to fat children, the last thing you should do is diet a child. If you had a child who... Is just kind of a bookworm in a homebody and, you know, isn't hungry to move their body. How do you talk about body movement? If you're trying to encourage behaviors, but this isn't necessarily a behavior that they're, like, excited for, then it becomes something they have to do because I'm told I have to do it for my health. So one thing I want to say about that is I'll have parents ask me that question. And parents, it's interesting, parents don't get stressed about their child's movement unless their child has a bigger body size. If their child has a thin, naturally thin or small body size and are quote-unquote couch potatoes, parents don't tend to be as stressed about it. So that alone is evidence of fat phobia. If you're just genuinely wanting to teach your children to move, I have three children and I love 
to teach them to move, and sometimes they're not interested in moving. I just try to have conversations about it in terms of the effects on their mental health, and I ask them to try to notice how they feel. Like one of my kids plays soccer, and sometimes he's not in the mood, and I'm like, too bad, I'm paying for it, you're going. <laughs> and at the end of practice, I'll say, hey, how are you feeling? How's your mood? And he'll be like, oh, that was really fun. I mean, that's not always the answer, but um, I'll just say, have you noticed how it affects your mental health to get your body movement in? Our bodies crave movement, and it's really good to pay attention to that. I also really try to implement activities as a family, whether they like it or not, where we get outside, get some vitamin D, and get some movement. That's my long-term plan. I'm trying to model my relationship with movement as something that hopefully they'll be interested in long-term. <laughs> What are some of the ways that family members and well-intended friends and teachers and church leaders are actually making things worse, uh, maybe unintentionally? Have you lost weight? (laughs) You look so good. Have you lost weight? How did you lose weight? So when you compliment somebody's weight loss, you have no idea what you're complimenting, right? You could be complimenting an eating disorder. You could be complimenting illness. You could be complimenting distress. You could be complimenting all sorts of things that you don't understand. Or you might be complimenting, you know, what they interpret as success, having worked really hard to look a certain way. And the reason that's still problematic is because let's say that you've gone on a diet and you've been working out and your weight has changed and then people compliment you. I guess what that also reinforces is well, so how did I look before? Was I unacceptable before? And will I be unacceptable to you should my weight change again? I personally think just comments about people's appearance and body weight, shape, and size just tend to reinforce obsession about our bodies as objects, our bodies as something to be evaluated. And personally, I don't see that as being helpful in actually connecting with people and actually being compassionate and loving, and I don't see it as reinforcing health behaviors. I, I see it as reinforcing obsession about how we look to each other. Mm. So even even if it's not a, it's not a comment about body size, but I mean this is like it's the probably the number one thing. It would be the Family Feud number one thing that would pop up of things you say to someone you haven't seen in a long time. Hundred percent. You look so good. Uh-huh. Right. And that's not. I just think we need to do better. What if you said, I'm so happy to see you, instead of you look so good? I've been looking so forward to seeing you. How are you doing? I feel so good when I'm around you. And you can compliment all sorts of things about people's appearance, but it it doesn't have to be about their body's size, shape, and weight. You can compliment their hairstyle, their clothing, their creativity, their eye color, and it doesn't have to be about body size, shape, and weight. We all know that's what it's about when you say you look so good. Hmm. We've all been trained. Do you think it's okay for parents to ask um, family friends and other family members to not comment on a child's body? Absolutely. In, you know, even the like, oh, you look so pretty in that dress or, you know, oh, look at your skinny legs. I wish I had skinny legs like that, those kinds of things. Yeah, I would just say let's elevate and improve our conversations. The things that we say to children, the ways that we compliment and motivate children, it's not a good idea to compare bodies with children. You know, I wish I had a body like a child. That's not a really good thing to say. Um, I don't think it's healthy or normal. I would, I, I, again, I think there's so many more interesting ways to connect and love people than the size, shape, and weight of their bodies. I'm raising three sons right now, and they're being influenced by this hypermuscularity culture. And every time they're like, oh, so-and-so's getting so ripped, like this, my response is literally like, oh, really? Is he kind? Is he smart? Does he work hard? What's he like? What's his personality like? Do the people around him feel loved and at ease? I'm way more interested in those things than his his muscle definition. And I'm just hoping that that lands. How do I start as somebody who it's so programmed into me that I it I, those connections are so learned and so solid. It's always first and foremost about the shape of my body. You've been programmed. Yes, yeah, so how do I deprogram myself? 
I would say you can begin to notice when you get those programmed thoughts and then try to redirect and reorient yourself that this movement is about strength, wellness, moving with my kids, you know, whatever is motivating to you outside of the size, shape in your body. Some people, I think it really helps them not to see their body while they're exercising to really connect with the more mindful components. Start with you know, trying not to self-objectify, trying not to imagine how your body looks to other people, trying not to think of your body as something that needs to change or be changed, but thinking about exercise as something you do that is a behavior of true self-love and find a way to do it that you'll keep it up. Find a hobby, find an outlet. Do you like being indoors? Do you like being outdoors? Um, Do you like doing it with a group? And then try to really monitor not only your internal chatter, but chatter amongst your social group if you do work out in a group Mm. about it not being about your body size, shape, and weight, but about how good you feel. Should I be calling out, you know, if someone says, hey, you look good, have you been working out? Should I be like, how dare you ask me that question? (laughs) So I just always try to redirect the conversation Mm. to something that's not about my body as an object. Mm. So I might say like, you know, I have been working out and I've been feeling so energized. So I talk about it in terms of my hobbies, my interest, about strength and wellness, Mm. about feeling good, about my back not hurting, about having better sleep. I mean, there's so many ways that we can have conversations about our body and our fitness that don't have to do with the size of my thighs or the shape of my butt. And the research would suggest that movement doesn't change people's bodies dramatically, but it does change their metabolism, their physiology, and their mental health. And if we just had more conversations about that, I think it would genuinely be more motivating. Because who doesn't want to feel stronger and happier? So it turns out the best sales pitch for a healthy lifestyle has been there all along. We just haven't heard it because we were too distracted by the number on the scale. Our thanks to clinical psychologist Corrine Hannon and to our other guests today. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. This episode was produced by Ciara Hewlett and Olivia Young, with help from me and Cleon Wall. We had music and sound design by Trent Reimschussel, Jacob Malaski, and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. We would love to have you subscribe and leave a comment or review wherever you listen to the podcast. That'll help other people find us. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. Hold up. 